0: by the nature of our business, we have to play devil's advocate for each other on any strategy we're employing. My my dad's the smartest guy in the room always, but actually putting the, you know, the act of of placing the wager is not not a strength of his. Meaning meaning that he's just, again, always, you know, fearing that we're missing something, even though we've done our analysis ad nauseum and we know we're on the right side. I, I mean, there have been multiple instances over the years of us finding a sports book that allows a certain type of wager that almost no sports book would allow, and me still having to debate him hard on whether we have the right side of
1: this. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is episode 27, A Family Business. One of the reasons that I like to do this podcast and one reason I like to talk to professional gamblers is that they tell stories that operate on two parallel tracks. They talk about the puzzle they set out to solve. How to win at horse racing or how to beat some blackjack side bet. Those puzzles require math, logic, and being a little clever. And then the same story is also often about something else, which is why do it in the first place? How did their life lead them to that point? I think that slice of the story can probably generalize to people outside of gambling because almost everyone has faced the question what are you willing to do? How much effort are you willing to expend to live a life on your own terms? So there's a universal and inherently human challenge baked into these stories? We're going to come back to this idea, but for now, I just want to get into the episode, which is about a sports betting operation run by a father and son. These guys made a living from sports, but they're not really sports guys per se. They're math guys. And if you add up their experience, they have more than 60 combined years of using math to win at gambling. This is Dan Pasco. When Dan was growing up, his dad was a math teacher, and then later a professional backgammon player. Dan's dad was very interested in his education and also used backgammon as a teaching tool.
0: My dad was, uh, you know, he was, relentless sounds like a harsh word, but it isn't in this context. He was, you know, he would spend any amount of time with me on any problem. And during those formative years, I was also around him and backgammon where there was constantly I mean, that's not high. Probability is not high level math. I mean, unless it's probability theory. But yeah, I I was I was constantly exposed to those kinds of problems and those kinds of calculations. And he would, yeah, bounce. He, I mean, he wouldn't. He he would pose questions to me that I would have to figure out.
1: Dan's dad is Jim Pasco, a top backgammon player over several decades. He says that when it came to math, it always just made sense to him.
2: When I was uh, four years old, there was a friend of uh, my mom and dad's that used to hold poker games at our house once or twice a week. And I could stand at the table and I would see what was going on. And already, somehow I understood, well, somebody had better, I didn't know the terms, but better chances to win than other people based on some kind of odd. I mean, I, I just understood like math and odds or something. Before I was in kindergarten. So, you know, all through school, I was way ahead. I always realized that math in general, but probability and statistics were going to be a a good gateway to success in some way or another. We didn't have money at all, our family. So I kind of got my way through college on playing in the, um, you know, in between classes and other stuff always playing card games mainly, and supporting myself through college on card games. I'd have a Friday nights and Saturday night poker games at our house that were big edges for me always. And uh, then I was teaching and still doing that. uh, We had a local bar, we would play card games in, I would win. And at some point in my uh, my final year of teaching, one other math teacher was a bridge player. And at the time, in bridge in card rooms, that's really backgammon became popular from bridge. When there was downtime for the bridge players, they, at different clubs, they were taking up this game backgammon. And he had played backgammon, this math, other math teacher, for a couple of years already. And he introduced me to the game. And right away, I could see all the math that was going to be involved. And within maybe two or three weeks, I was better than him right away. And he said, you know, they play this game for big money in New York. And I eventually got over to New York, went to this one club, the Flea House. And uh, from there, I met somebody, uh, this guy, Steve Zolotel. Oh, and he, um, he told me about the Mayfair Club. And that's how things went. And I was immediately quitting teaching. My wife, Dan's mom, wasn't that excited that I was going to just wander into a gambling world and expect, you know, to make a living. And of course it wasn't even close financially. I was making $14,000 a year, my 11th year of teaching. And, uh, I could see that this, yeah, the backgammon world, when I actually got to the Mayfair club and was famous already as having all the best players. And I watched, I says, why is it that they're so good? I mean, I'm not, I'm not convinced. Uh, so That was how that, so things happen pretty quickly. I immediately quit teaching.
1: Maybe if you were born after about 1970, you do not care at all about backgammon. The game hasn't held a prominent cultural position for a long time. But if you're interested in how people get edges, then I think that Jim's story will be interesting. One way to describe an edge is the information you have, which is valuable and uniquely yours. So it helps to be contrarian. You have to be willing to believe that everyone else is missing something. But it does no good to buck conventional wisdom and be wrong. So you have to go against the crowd, and you have to be right.
2: I think I could just see probabilities. And what I did notice right away is a few players that were considered the best, they dominated the chouettes. They said what to do and everything. And there was no computer programs. There was nothing to indicate other than them having confidence and probably being winners at the club that they had all the right answers.
1: One of the things that Jim did early was to go through the literature, like the famous Paul McGrill book on backgammon, and then look for places where he thought it might be off. Because everyone was following McGrill, if McGrill was wrong, it would be very profitable. So then Jim would test his hypothesis by rolling out each position. This would be like running computer sims, but very slowly and by hand. It was like analog simulations, and that was how he developed an informational edge. He just put in the hours.
2: If you play a position out over and over again, first of all, you'll get a feel if it's right or wrong. Uh, Secondly, what people don't do nowadays is they can look up in the bot and just assume the bot has the right answer, but they won't even necessarily know why it's the right answer. They might guess at why it's right, but when you play a position out a few hundred times, you get a feel of that position you learn a lot about it.
1: In backgammon, there's a very direct way to take your opinion about a position and turn it into a wager. You can just set up the board in a specific way and offer to bet someone. So the knowledge that Jim was gathering from rolling out positions could be used to play these propositions against other players.
2: Well, I would evaluate what I already knew about backgammon and the pros and cons of a play. And if I saw that gee, I, I think this is wrong, then I'd roll it out. Now, I could have missed other positions that were incorrect or whatever, but I would roll out anything that looked look like it could be wrong to me from a book or from positions that came up all the time when we would play every day. I was at the Mayfair. I don't know how many hours a day I put in there at night. And um, I'd go home and roll them out, and nobody was doing, doing
1: that. Jim says that the best backgammon players in the world were playing at the Mayfair. And he knew this because he played all over the U.S. and all over the world. But he didn't think that the players were so good that they couldn't be beaten. And so he camped at the Mayfair looking for games. He was a grinder. He probably could have played less if he'd been willing to play for bigger stakes. But that is not Jim's style.
2: I I understood that if people were going to disagree with me, and I was right by a significant amount, I'd make some money. You know, simple as that. Now, again, I told you I didn't make the money I could have made, you know, when everybody wanted to bet against me. But uh, overall, I was going to have a, a, a positive ROI. And I would do that like, you know, 24-7. I'd be at the Mayfair uh, playing things like that. Or if we went to tournaments and travel, I'd play props. Or so it was really like that wasn't creation really so much. That was income. It's not like I was being creative. I was just digging around and seeing where somebody might misinterpret a a prop, you know, or a position. And then if I knew that they were wrong or believed that they were wrong, then I would play it out and that would be an income.
1: Because Jim was spending so much time at the Mayfair, sometimes Dan would tag along. As a kid, he took his homework and he studied while Jim worked. He also came to know the people there, and they knew him. But Dan says that it didn't seem odd to him, and he doesn't really remember it seeming odd to anyone else either. I
0: don't remember anybody thinking it was that odd. I I think it was a different time when people weren't maybe as judgmental as they are now. I, I don't feel like people were up in each other's business as much as they are these days about what is good parenting, proper parenting, etc.
1: Okay. Maybe there were a few things about being at the Mayfair that were odd.
0: There are, there are certainly times that I can recall, like being at the Mayfair and being a little feeling a little out of place, um, as a child. Like I think there was, there was a central TV room there. And maybe sometimes they'd be watching, x-rated stuff in there and they would usher the kid out and they didn't and i didn't know why the kid was getting i didn't know why i was getting ushered out but um yeah other than that i just kind of felt at home with these people yeah
1: also dan's education wasn't exactly typical it was custom tailored
0: it was weird from a school concept i mean the school system I was in, we sort of, you know, they, not to sound braggadocious, but they they saw my talent and my dad could chime in on this, but I think they kind of gave us the run of like how I got my work done and when it got submitted.
2: Yeah, I was very close with Al Cohn, who was the principal and he would do kind of anything. He knew Dan's potential, so he'd go along with most things.
1: I know what you're thinking. Dan took his homework to the Mayfair. He spent time around gamblers. He missed school for backgammon trips. He probably had a really laid back childhood, right?
0: Wrong. We were off on some backgammon trip somewhere. And one of my assignments was to read uh, George Orwell's 1984. And I blew it off. And it comes like we're back home in Jersey the night before the report on it is due. And suddenly I have to, whatever. I'm not, I'm not a good liar. I fess up to my dad that I've, yeah, I've blown this off. And he's like, well, no, you haven't. You still have like 18 hours. So get in there and you're not going to sleep. You read the whole book, you write the report. And, uh, that solved my procrastination problem for the rest of my life. (laughs) And he came
2: home for the first time ever and said he had a book report. I guess he had told my mom because she was babysitting and that he had a book report through the next day and he didn't even read the book. And she said, okay, I'll talk to your dad when he comes in now for dinner. Uh, And uh, when I came in, she you know, she'd always protect him and everything, and uh, she told me what happened. He was over standing on his side with tears in his eyes like first time he ever was not going to get a straight A on something. I said, it's okay. There's no problem. Uh, we got all night to do the book and then do the report. So <laughs> even if we just fall asleep, I give him like a tap on the head like so it got done. And he never failed after that to do any and get an assignment done.
1: The net result of Dan's natural ability and Jim's influence was that Dan was on a gifted track in school.
0: Johns Hopkins University had a SAT, yeah, some pro- program that allowed kids to take the SATs early. I think the first time I took it when I was 11, I think I got 570 in math and 380 in English. And then I took it a couple more times before I graduated high school when everybody else does, and I was up to 780 math, 570 English. So math was always my strength, but yeah.
1: At the Mayfair, Jim was grinding backgammon games, but he wasn't hustling. He didn't rely on any act to convince people he was bad. In fact, Jim is basically incapable of giving people the wrong impression about how sharp he is. People would come over from the stock market
2: after a day and play and they looked forward to playing uh, me, even if they they thought they couldn't win. It was just a different era, Uh just to try and beat me. Uh, I was actually able to also give lessons then for two hundred dollars an hour, which nobody was getting, because I had gotten lucky and won a number of tournaments. So my reputation was pretty good, and I was a good teacher. But I never had, I never made believe ever that I was anybody that I wasn't.
1: I've only started learning about late 70s and early 80s backgammon culture, but I'm still amazed at this world that existed then that is gone now. For instance, a core part of backgammon culture was that it was played in the same places that the upper crust frequented, like the Turnberry Yacht Club.
2: Like, uh, okay, at the Turnberry Yacht Club, I won it two out of three years and came in fourth the other year. They only had it three years. But like it was... There would be race car drivers, like backgammon, tennis players. One night I'm playing this other fellow, like all night session, we're playing props and uh, Jimmy Connors was sitting there watching us because he had a place at penthouse at Turnberry at the time. So it it was a totally different world than it is now.
1: And it wasn't just played in the places that rich people hung out. It was also played by rich people.
2: The first big jump for me was this woman who, from St. Louis, uh, Martha Sturdivant was her name, and she was famous in the backgammon world for being this rich donor. She had two ex-husbands that were oil magnets. So she would, uh, I think she had a money manager, and she was allowed about $80,000 a week to gamble. And she was a wonderful woman. i bless her, but she was uh, the worst player of all time along with being able to spend that money. And uh what happened one time, this is where it worked out great for me being in it. Because somebody invited me to introduce me to her and these two other good players were gonna start a chouette and they asked me if I wanted to play. And it was fifty dollars a point and like my max at that time was like about twenty five dollars a point, even though I had won tournaments and everything. It was ridiculous. So I says, Okay, thanks, I'll just watch. She took this as so nice that I didn't want to hustle her, that she fell in love with me. Everybody always wanted games with her. She knew I won tournaments. I was this very good player. She used to fly me out to to her house on weekends to play, and she would have zero chance. I mean, I could win as many points as I wanted to. So that increased my, that made me, it took me a jump in what I was, uh,
1: the money I had. At some point, Jim had a chance to join some other backgammon players who were going to the financial markets, but he decided against it. Instead, he went to California, where there were some interesting opportunities. There was a club in LA, the Cavendish, where games ran. And then there were also people that might be called VIPs or fish, depending on how you might want to refer to them.
2: And I got a call from San Diego, some friends who had met me in the backgammon world, that there was this guy that was just crazy and giving away money out there. And I went out there to see what was going on. What happens is this fella called himself Lee Schaefer. And he was this crazy and this bad, and he was just giving away money. Until one day, after I was playing him every day for weeks, staying at these friends' house, he disappeared. It turns out the FBI got him because he was an international drug dealer. We had no idea. And I found out this all later, not that because he got arrested, uh, but I found out this from people at the World Championships in Monte Carlo, or oh, that was this guy Lee Schaefer you were playing. And again, I kept the stakes down where God knows what I could have taken at that time, but I kept the stakes. low.
1: <laughs> at the Cavendish, the games were good, but it was a little bit of a culture shock for Jim. Whereas he held the people at the Mayfair in high regard, the people in LA were different.
2: I, one thing I always say the mayfair if if I walked out of there and somehow my wallet I didn't remember till I got back in Jersey at home and my wallet I wasn't that worried as long as it fell on the floor in the Mayfair because everybody was that honorable if I had done that at the Cavendish, I would not have felt the same. <laughs> it was uh slightly different I mean there was cheating going on there, and it was you know so uh. But the, all in all, the club was a, a very well-run club. I'm just saying that the clientele wasn't quite the same. But there were famous people there too. One of the classics was um, from Get Smart, Don Adams. He was a crazy gambler who had a money manager would allow him to lose so much. So he was the same person in real life as he was on that show. Exactly. <laughs> This fella who turned out to be a big, a big cheater, and he was, uh, but he was popular in backgammon, even wrote a book. His name was Gabby Horowitz. And uh, I brought one of my props out there, and I showed, set it up, and he liked the wrong side of it. So I'm playing him, and he's just going to get buried. He had no chance at the world. I mean, the points I was going to, I mean, how fast I would win points. So I was up like 80 some points in no time at all. And he took a break. And he called back to the Mayfair, and he got this other very good player, Mike Sankowitz, on the phone. And uh, he said, "I'm losing. Am I? What's going on? I'm playing some prop, and I'm getting killed. Like, does this make any sense?" He says, "I assume Jim Pasco's there playing." You. So <laughs> that was my into my early one of my earliest things at the uh, at the Cavendish. Yeah, the players had money, and they were much weaker. There was no comparison between there and the Mayfair.
1: A month ago, I'd never played even a single game of backgammon. But since then, I've been learning to play against a bot, and I also play against my wife. I definitely get why the game had a heyday. Imagine taking checkers or chess and then adding dice. Because some part of the outcome is unknown, and because luck obscures skill, it's fun. But they call backgammon the cruelest game for a reason. It's just a matter of time before the dice deliver a beatdown. And when it happens, it will be frustrating, and you will feel completely helpless.
0: Yeah, th- there are, there are different levels of bad beats in this world. There's there's like things that happen in poker. There's things that happen in sports, and then there's things that happen in backgammon. And I I was unfortunate enough to like experience a couple of them myself, but also see some of like it was it, it you know it, it's a thing in our family where watching my dad you know. Watching my dad play at the time, since it was our living, was stressful. And whenever he or my stepmom in later years would watch him play, the results would seemingly, for no explicable reason in this universe, not be what they should. Basically, that we were were
1: a black cat. Dan isn't only talking about the outcomes here. There was more going on than just wins and losses. I mean, it was just
2: pure pressure. This was our income. This was it. And it wasn't like I was, you know, I, I had to work hard for, you know, like okay income at the time until I built up, you know, things years later. But, uh, I, and I, I often have him with me and he'd watch and it wasn't fun for somebody that age, you know, 10, 11 years old or something. It was stressful. And then we have fun wherever we were in Florida, wherever we happen to be. In the winters, I'd be down there playing, and he'd be down there often. So, uh, yeah, he had a, a lot of, you know, stress out of that situation, and that's kind of what turned him off of it.
1: Jim has lots of stories about famous people that he ran into and famous gamblers he knows. A partial list of names he mentioned includes the pitcher, Oral Hershiser, gamblers like Stu Unger, Chip Reese, Bob Volgaris, Gus Hansen, and that's just a partial list. Jim is fascinated by the way that people can learn games, and so he holds game specialists like Stu Unger and Gus Hansen in very high regard. But Jim also knows other famous people. He became friendly with Magic Johnson, who thought it was funny that there could be such a thing as a professional batgammon player.
2: After the HIV thing, he st- he made a comeback. And he was working out. He started working out in the mornings at Sports Club LA, a famous, fantastic gym, the best. And so we worked out there every day. We lived a few blocks away. So Magic started working out at the same time. It was actually him striking up a conversation with my wife before I knew him. And then of course I got to know him right away. And, uh, You know, I mean, great guy. Same type of personality in real life as you see. And um, you know, he found out what I did. I was a backgammon player, and uh, he thought that was really interesting. And uh, at the time, then besides him just working out in the mornings, he had this team he put together that he could practice with most days, either at the Sports Club LA or at UCLA. And we would go hang out and watch him work out and stuff. Um, eventually, uh, he was having a big surprise party for his uh, wife, Cookie. Uh, he rented out to Santa Monica Airport for it <laughs> for an evening. And uh, we went to that. And the reason that was so funny is uh, all these famous people are there. And he was introducing me as, you can't believe this guy. He, he plays backgammon professionally. Like, okay, well, how about all these people? You know, it was funny. Um, but then with as far as the backgammon goes, one a couple of times, see, he never, like, he wouldn't even play. It wasn't a matter of money. He wouldn't even play for nothing if he thought he'd lose. This is how super competitive he is, you know, just like Jordan. And, uh, but he would get a couple of his friends that they knew they played backgammon, And have them play me just so he can enjoy seeing, you know, me beat them and him getting a laugh.
1: Over the years, the money in backgammon essentially dried up. But backgammon wasn't just a thing Jim played because he could make money at it. He still plays every day. He plays in tournaments against other humans, and he plays against the XG bot. XG has had a big impact on the game because it changed the way that people get good at backgammon. Jim says that XG plays close to perfectly. So, for a human who wants to learn the game, their best bet is to copy the bot.
2: There's a lot of people, a lot of people with that, that are considered very good players, and they basically have great memories. And that's kind of sad because, just hypothetically, if you had a super photographic memory and could know every almost every position or every opening position, you wouldn't even have to have a clue on the essence of the game. But you could get all the plays right and be a highly ranked player.
1: Jim's not thrilled about the game being largely one of memorization because that's not how he got good. He got good from experimenting and thinking deeply about the strategy. And he definitely didn't just mimic the other good players.
2: I've never been that excited about replication. So if if I have a great memory and I can just study XG for hours and hours... I'll probably become a very strong player, but I didn't create anything. To me, it's like being a little robotic. So I don't get a thrill out of saying, oh, I play the fifth lowest PR, which is power ra- rating, uh, performance rating. Um, I play the lower the better, and I play that level, or I'm the best at that. I don't, that doesn't do anything for me.
1: Jim's approach to the XG bot and his approach to Paul McGrill's work Shows how he's been able to find edges over the years he respects the bot, but that doesn't mean he's going to stop looking for places it might be vulnerable
2: in backgammon the uh, x g bot has one fundamental weakness to different degrees so um if you play something called this like a super back game where you get all your men back uh hit, you can actually form a, a, a position. That is, you're going to have this prime that you're going to be moving forward and you trap the one checker. Anyway, XG has no idea when you're actually 200 pips behind, but you're actually a big favorite. So something happens bad based on, on its algorithms. Um, now, what I found is that since it's overvaluing a race in that case to a horrible degree, Maybe there's positions early on that it's slightly overvaluating the race equity. And I've come up with some of those. But overall, the, the, the bot is the best play in the world. First of all, it'll never miss a play. Like we can be, we're human, we cannot see something. The bot will never not see something. Uh, and also, the bot is very good. The, the, the you know, person wrote the bot, it's, it's a very good player overall anyway, and it's gotten better. Um, so the bot's the best, player, but it's definitely beatable. And if I play it in something called Pascal Gammon, I have an edge. But that doesn't mean everybody's going to find this edge. I've offered this prop, standing prop, that I'll bet on XG against anybody in the world in Pascal Gammon, or they can bet on XG against
1: me. Every edge has a limited shelf life. They either get competed away or someone closes a loophole or the money disappears like it did in backgammon. I was curious if Jim was worried about having his livelihood impacted as the backgammon world changed.
2: And mean, those golden days, I would rather sit at the Mayfair and just make money and have a nice group of people and everything. So, you know, down the road when I transitioned over to booking a little bit and embedding sports, everything, I knew that somewhere I'd find a math angle. It's just probably, on statistics and the world of gambling was big. Would I have to go to poker at some day? I don't know, you know. But I didn't doubt that I could always make an income of some type in the gambling world.
1: Even though Dan had a lot of exposure to gambling and his math education was a good fit, it wasn't obvious he would end up down that road. In fact, Dan was on a different path in college
0: it was going to be something math related and then it just so happened that at the time i was at ucla they started in conjunction with a local financial firm whose name escapes me uh offering actuarial classes for the first time and given obviously my background in gambling and risk assessment the, those struck me as as more interesting than my economics classes at the time. So I quickly, yeah, wh- whatever ones they offered prior to my graduation, uh, I was taking those. And so I took a couple exams before I graduated. One of them I placed second in the country. Ended up getting a job with Transamerica in downtown L.A. Um, you know, got... Got, for, I was in, within, was in with a good group of people intellectually, but got frustrated early on with corporate nonsense. And some of the things I had to do on the job there, I found a little distasteful. Like, yeah, you know, getting like, accepting getting yelled at by clients, even though I knew I was doing the right thing. This was in pension actuarial math and municipal finance. Ended up defecting from that firm to, The firm of one of the people that yelled at me, (laughs) Um, worked in municipal finance at that firm for a while, actually on the pension side of that firm as well. But uh, then, again, got frustrated with the ethics of that firm.
1: One of the problems for the people that come on this podcast, and I will just paint with a broad brush here by saying that they are smart people with tendencies toward independence and self-reliance, is that... Finding and holding a regular job isn't impossible per se, but it is an exercise in threading needles because the work has to be interesting. And if you have a boss, you have to respect their abilities. And as Dan says, you also have to have some common ground in terms of values. So it's not impossible in theory, but maybe in practice it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, you got to find the the person that you look up to somehow and has your same moral and ethical compass then maybe you can work for them because it's somebody you feel like you can learn some sort of valuable life lesson for. But other if it's not for somebody, if yeah, no paycheck is worth working for somebody you don't respect.
1: After Dan's frustrations with his career in the actuarial world had piled up, he went back to school and it wasn't purely a respite from bullshit. There might've been some hope that ultimately Dan could be an academic
0: you're more excited to do the work that you're good at and you get good grades in. And, you know, I, like I said, I didn't know where I was going with it. I, I mean, I think dad's, you know, since he had been a teacher, his dream at one time might've been for me to be a professor and spend my life on a campus, just, you know, advancing mathematical theory. Um, but I got enough of a taste of economics at UCLA And then, as I mentioned, the actuarial curriculum came into being right around the time I was there. And I'm like, this kind of is, I think, what I'm looking for. Now, it turns out I didn't want to be a a lifelong actuary either, but I wanted to be assessing risk. I wanted to be using math, not in its purest theoretical form, but using it to make educated mathematical I mean act- educated financial decisions
2: no I mean I picture him being a mainstream maybe a college professor in math or you know what, what or just something where he was going to be happy um, in a nice atmosphere um, making a good income whatever I thought math was clearly going to be especially when he was good at math early on so
1: Whatever the initial plan might have been, Dan didn't stay in grad school for long. He was heading for the exit at the same time that Jim was finding opportunities in sports betting. So they rolled up their sleeves and went after the bookmakers. In the early days, they could find places where the books didn't make good lines. And they also found stuff where the books just didn't understand what they were offering.
2: When Shaq was playing for the Lakers... Uh, these one book was offering props on everything, even minutes played by players and whoever was guarding Shaq would automatically play maybe half his minutes because he would always foul out and yet they would take his average minutes. So it was things like that, that I had found right away early. And then when Dan got in, he was able to pull the trigger.
1: One way the advantage gamblers make money is by hacking the system, by turning the underlying assumptions upside down. For example, let's say that you like the payouts of a three-team parlay, which are about six to one, but you don't like the odds of actually winning a three-team parlay. Well, what if you could bet a two-team parlay, but get paid like a three-team parlay? You'd get paid the same and win about twice as often. Well, that's pretty close to what Jim and Dan actually did.
0: The first thing that came to our attention was a simple correlated event is, was The World Sports Exchange was one of the first online sports betting sites, and they had a thing which is called the Grand Salami, which was the total number of goals scored in the NHL in a day. But they were letting you parlay the results of individual games to that. And on a day where there's very few games, you can see instantly that there's a huge car. To take into the extreme, a day where there's two games, If both games go over, then the Grand Salami is going to go over. So that was when we first realized, oh, this, you know, that was the first taste of internet books not doing what, not locking out what they should, not pricing things the way they should. You could do a three-team parlay over game one with over game two with over the Grand Salami. Now you're getting three-team parlay odds on what is essentially a two-event parlay because the third, the third is one hundred percent correlated to hitting the first two. There's also if bets are a thing where you can where each each leg is a contingent bet on the previous leg. We're able to do on one of these Grand Salami, one of these NHL days with two games on the board. Ten dollars on over the first game to ten, and if you hit that, ten dollars on over the second game, and if you hit that, you can do a thousand dollars on over Grand Salami. So now you're, I think your expected return there is about 250 bucks, and you're risking 10 bucks.
1: The well-known parts of advantage gambling are find an edge and figure out how much to bet. Another less talked about element is that professional gamblers often end up running a logistics operation. They have to create systems to actually get the money down. In the case of the Pasco operation, Dan ran the numbers, and Jim handled the process of getting the accounts needed. To make bets,
2: yeah, they, they developed the whole system of uh, you know using spreadsheets and databases to do everything. And my job became getting people to get accounts for us, dealing with all the headaches there. And uh, so he was putting in the hours, but we wouldn't have traded positions with each other. It, it worked out perfectly because he would never want to spend time on the phone with these people. And yet, uh, he had to put in all these ridiculous
1: hours of work. Today, the internet is highly structured. So, if you want to do something like pull down every college basketball box score and point spread from the last five years and put that into a format that's easy to run analysis on, it's not very much code. But Dan started doing this stuff 20 plus years ago. The early internet wasn't highly structured, it was like a house built from tumbleweeds. Uh, Excel had web
0: queries. Early on, it was, I mean, yeah, you'd pull it in, it would be a mess, and then you have to figure out how to work with the data. But uh, they uh, yeah, that happened while I, during the the one to two years I was in grad school and quickly becoming disillusioned with academia again.
1: Dan's background as an actuary also clued him in to some of the potential pitfalls of running analysis.
0: We We have some great sheets that we've built, but it's it's none of it's worth anything without the intuition, the actual you know, and that I believe I can attribute to my actuarial training. For my dad, it's just innate, I guess. But um, to know when, okay, we got this result from our quote unquote database spreadsheet, um, but does it make sense? Because you don't, you just don't want to be data mining. It's so, it's so that it has to line up the results that the sheet spits you had better line up with what is intuitive. Yeah. What, with what is logical. It had better conform with your, your, your theory you had before you built the sheet, or else you need to stare at it for a long time and decide, Oh, our theory before the sheet was built was wrong and and here is
1: why if you just assume that no sportsbook would ever offer an exploitable bet you wouldn't be far off that's an assumption that is close enough that it will be right most of the time most sportsbooks will do a pretty good job of protecting themselves except the assumption is wrong enough to ignore all of the value jim and dan made a living by finding the places where the sportsbooks greed got the best of them That's sort of every advantage gambling story, right? Some book or some casino just can't help themselves. They want to figure out every last way to take their customers' money, and they end up over their skis. They offer something that's exploitable.
0: Yeah, go through the go through a place's homepage. Click on you know, click on volleyball. Click on what you know. See what there is. And how you might exploit it. You're not going to, don't go to the NFL point spread page because you're not going to exploit that unless you're a true unicorn. Most people that bet sports don't want to really look for a way to win. They just want to look for a way to express their opinion and uh, have it work out for them, and it's not going to.
1: Overlooked and exploitable bets might lead you down the rabbit hole betting on sports that most people don't even know you can gamble on
0: there's been tennis there's been ping pong there's been uh, yeah I mean all kinds of weird props in yeah you know, in the major sports I mean that's that's not that weird but I mean yeah I mean yeah you know, when you get into ping pong and volleyball that's pretty far off <laughs> off most people's radar it's funny and in, in most of what we do, it doesn't matter who the players are doesn't matter what their skill levels are doesn't it's it's so much it's so data driven or correlation driven that a couple guys that work with me in the office on saturdays used to joke around the most the most frequently asked question throughout the day is what team are we betting on again just before we click the button It had so little to do with the talent on the field and to do with just what the database was
1: telling us to do. Jim and Dan had lots of accounts over the years with lots of different kinds of bookmakers that ran the gamut in terms of their competence. And yet all of that experience hasn't gotten the guys a lot closer to understanding how the bookmakers think. They just have to guess at it.
0: through 20 however many years in the business the perhaps the most perplexing problem of all of it has been what is inside each bookie's head and what was going to make them what was going to maximize yeah what was going to maximize the life and dollar value of a given account and no no not many bookies seem to think alike some of them don't think at all, which was obviously to our benefit.
2: If you're a professional sports bettor and you can get down on a certain thing for, let's say, $1,000 that the place will take, then you're probably going to play that if you have that e- positive equity. So I always thought, well, what happens if we try and fly under the radar screen and not bet max bets? Would that keep us in action? It wasn't a fail-safe type of thing. It wasn't like, oh, we would stay in action forever with a place because we were playing under that. But did it help with places? I, we don't even have a clear answer to this
1: day. The early days of internet bookmaking also featured the mad dash to acquire customers that would be familiar to anyone who has seen companies like Caesars hand out free bets, like their Halloween candy. I mean, it is sort of interesting how old ideas become new again
0: in in the heyday pre pre UIGEA they had a thing where they were sending out gifts to their biggest winners each week it was it, it, it was a very weird time pre UIGEA when all these books i mean kind of kind of like the insanity that's gone on with the domestic licensed industry lately where all they're giving away ridiculous bonuses to get clients knowing that people can bonus whore them basically That's what it was like back then. These places just wanted clients, the offshore places.
1: Jim did get visibility into how one bookmaker thought. He became friendly with a guy who worked for one of the Las Vegas books, and he was surprised that this guy held views that you might find in a recreational gambler. Ideas like, you could string together negative EV bets and somehow still come out ahead.
2: But he ran a sports book in Vegas and uh we were there every day we would hang out play horses me and my wife and whatever and uh that's and and i'd bet sports all the time and basically i get a a kind of an edge because i'd used the penny line moves and they were slower there uh and um so but we got got to be friends and he was okay with that uh and then at one point something strange was going on the uh He'd stop all bets for like a period of time. It could be 10 minutes or more. And I saw some, one person would be at the window. Now, this I'm not sure this was, would have even been okay with the Gambling Commission at the time. But anyway, it went on. So after a few days, I asked him, uh, what, what's, what's going on? Something strange. He says, well, I got a great situation. He says, these people, and I think it was college basketball, almost positive. Uh, these people would promise to bet good amounts on every game if they could get a point and a half to best. It could have even been college football, but that would be seriously ridiculous. But anyway, it was it a situation they promised to bet every game. So I said, well, I call him by his name. I said, well, why do you think this is so great for you? Uh, I says, are you sure you're on the right side of the, the bets by being moved a point and a half? I says, I'm I'm pretty sure you're actually not. He, so his comment was, well, it wouldn't make any difference because the volume would make up for that, right? So he's thinking that somehow magically, like if you multiply negatives together, that a bunch of negative equity bets for him would would obviously turn into a positive. So I had to go through the math with him, but that would, And here's a guy that was well recognized as uh, uh, articles he would do for the weekly um, and different things, and it was uh, <laughs> it was pretty funny that he actually thought that a bunch of bad equity bets for him would be a positive. So.
1: If you're curious, what Jim is describing is probably a five percent edge to the player. And keep in mind that the thing the book was really excited about was the volume. I mean, it's kind of funny because there are sharp bettors out there living off 1% edges and getting kicked out of sports books all over the place. And then Jim meets this guy who is bragging about offering a volume better a 5% edge. In the bookmaking world, there's something called a paperhead. If you think about companies like FanDuel as sports betting gone corporate, then the paper heads were more like mom and pop operations.
0: But then when you took it down a notch, apparently to these paper head shop, and that, you know, with the paper head shops and in the, in the initial stages, they didn't really have the management of those places didn't seem to care or worry about protecting their clientele who were the bookies. So now it was up to the, these bookies who were not really professionals, by nature, most of them, they just figured out, hey, I can be a bookie for my local whoever uh, with this paper set up. They didn't know to, you know, to to ask the shop, the paperhead shop, to turn off certain types of bets or car, you know, be they correlated, be they props. They they had they had to learn the hard way by get- getting their heads beat in by us. And then ultimately, I mean, it took years really to, for the paper head shops to realize, wait a minute, we probably do have a vested interest here in trying to protect the bookies. Even though they're just paying us a flat fee, they're going to be able to stay in business a lot longer and pay us that flat fee if we start advising them on these, these things that sharps are killing them on.
1: Over time, everything tightened up. The bookmakers got better at not offering the correlated parlays and also the prop market got more efficient.
0: Correlated parlays, they still, you know, they're still out there if you get the right paperhead bookie in a shop that doesn't really care about protecting them and the bookie is dumb enough to not understand when they look at, you know, not understand to look at the bets that are coming in and realize this person's only betting dog and under or favor and over or whatever. And yeah, and consult with anybody and figure out they shouldn't be booking them. So it still exists, but it's just gotten increasingly rare because enough bookies have lost enough money. And yeah, again, you, you don't know why you, you, as the bookie, you don't know why you're getting your head beat against the wall. You just want it to stop. Now with the props, I can, I, I feel, I felt strongly for a long time. And that was about the time that we quit. To me, there's a distinct timeline between, um, not the UIGEA so much, but Black Friday in the poker world. Black Friday in the poker world, I think left a lot of young, sharp minds that were just crushing online poker, suddenly not wanting to go out and get real jobs but still sit in front of their computer and find a similar thing they could beat. And lo and behold, right around that time was when DraftKings and FanDuel had made Daily Fantasy Sports a big thing. So I believe many of those good minds, I can't name any, um, but it it sure seemed correlated. Uh, They flocked into DFS. And once you're in DFS and you realize you have an edge, as these people did, well, then you're, yeah. You know, it's not going to take long for you to discover, wait a minute, I can just bet individual player props. And it's it, the market got just much more competitive. And when, when the market gets more competitive then the bookies have to get short, they, they, you know, they, they might not even know why their lines are ending up in the right spot if they're, but they're moving them based on action. And if you have the right competition that knows which way to force the bookie to move the line, then you're screwed.
1: Jim and Dan have a unique attitude towards risk and variance for reasons that are related to the bets they were making and also to their life experiences, you know, who they are and where they come from. So let's spend a little time on this because it's a pretty interesting part of the story. First, I will just point out that if you bet small edges, like let's say you have a 1% edge betting NFL point spreads, then you are going to have wild variance. Taking big swings will just be a part of your life. And if you work all NFL season, and you're a small loser at the end it wouldn't be especially odd but if you have a big edge like the correlated parlays that these guys found well losing would be much more rare and so they weren't used to a lot of losing because of the types of bets they were making we don't
0: have losing years we rarely have losing months we might have a losing week but when we have a losing week it's kind of traumatic for us because we're not used to it um so we go exploring what we lost on and if it's one of these things that just seems like a clear mathematical edge or, or whatever we thought our edge was where we we're facing the bet, it, it spurs a conversation.
1: Sometimes the guys would find stuff that looked good, but for whatever reason wasn't winning. And for any edge you think you have, you can compare it to the actual results. If you think you have a small edge, then yes, it's easy to lose. But if your estimated edge is big... And you're losing, then the data is not matching the hypothesis.
0: If ninety percent of the accounts you got wouldn't allow something, there was probably a reason for that. So yeah, you know, when when I got a book that was offering these parways, I figured these must be plus EV because the other books have locked them out for some reason. And we went you know several weeks of playing them. We didn't get killed, but I, what you, when you think something's going to be a big edge and you're you know you're losing. Then it's time to, you know, hit the brakes, dissect the corpse and, uh, figure out what went wrong and never did really go back to, to betting it. Never did figure out exactly why it didn't work, but was pretty convinced that it was not a significant enough correlation to overcome the juice that you're paying on both legs of the parlay. I mean, these books, these books are all getting rich booking parlays. So you do have to, you know, it's not enough to just, you know, there's a reason they'll let you parlay a dog plus three and under 47 in an NFL game. It's not enough of a correlation. So I think that's, we ran into one of these instances where it looked like it was going to be a big correlation and it was not. We are the first to hit the brakes on anything that might have been successful for a long time and just say, did some dy- underlying dynamic change that we're not aware of yet? In the case of hockey, no, I, I I don't think there ever was. But there have been other spots where hitting the pause button did perhaps, you know, was was the right thing to do.
1: The attitude where it's better to be safe than sorry, well, that also affected some of their decisions on whether to write off their receivables.
0: Over the years, we have certainly encountered situations where people haven't paid us or didn't want to pay us. And yeah. And, and sometimes those situations were, you know, in the process of being negotiated and, yeah, there, there have been, there have been instances where we've sold our, sold our debt or sold our, sold what the sports book owed us for a discount because we were afraid we were not going to get paid.
2: It was a friend of mine that's a famous gambler, and I was at, we're having lunch with him, me and my wife were, and he said, that book is going to pay. They're just giving you a hard time. And I said, really? I'm not sure at all. So we disagreed. So whatever he bought it for, as soon as we agreed to the money, I get a phone call from, from Dan that, hey, we got paid. So like within five minutes, I had to hand him his profit. It was funny. We always laugh about it.
1: I just want to draw a circle around something we're hearing, because it is exactly what I'm talking about when I say that this show is about the intersection of gambling and life. Jim Pascoe walked into the Mayfair Club in New York, a club that was known to have the best backgammon players in the world, and thought, I can beat these guys. He left the stable and low-volatility world of teaching to become a backgammon pro, when almost no one even knew that was a job. He read what was known as the Bible of backgammon, and he found mistakes. He plays backgammon against a bot and he critiques the bots play. The point is that Jim Pascoe is not in short supply of confidence, but we've heard several times during the episode that he often lacked the stomach to make big bets. In fact, that was part of the reason that Dan was so key to the sports betting business. Yeah.
0: When you compare me to a, uh, whoever, any, uh, any other luminary in the sports betting world, I think I'm a total nit. (laughs) Meaning that i i, I yeah you know, you know, I've left a lot of money on the table by not pulling the trigger hard enough long enough, fast enough um but compared to my dad, I'm reckless <laughs> but but you know, it works i mean we 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 keep each other
1: in balance if Jim was gun shy about putting the money out, the explanation doesn't come from his estimates about what his bankroll could take or any kind of math. It came from a more primitive place. He had been poor, and he didn't ever want to be poor again.
2: I grew up different than Dan when Dan was brought up, but we were fine. Uh, I did fine. Uh, but when I was growing up, I, I think I never got over the fact that we were very poor and very insecure in my father's business. So I didn't know day to day um, if, if we had food on the table, literally and uh i don't think i ever got over that uh it, that psychology of oh i don't want to be broke you know like suppose i lost two thousand bets in a row like you know i mean some astronomical thing you know so uh yeah and i never really got over it and i didn't force myself because i thought if if i'm in this is this is going to be a lifetime for me family, i don't want to be uh you know um uh a stress factor over years and years not good for you so i just never forced and i was um, you know i was very happy with results
1: so jim Pasco, the math teacher with an innate understanding of how numbers work couldn't reduce risk to an equation he couldn't just estimate his odds of going broke and then bet some objective amount his mind works natively in math but he still couldn't turn off the part of the brain that operates on a more base level So I think that's one of the most interesting parts of the story that is already full of interesting stuff. Jim has spent almost a lifetime gambling now, and Dan has been doing it with him for a few decades. Jim loves to tell stories about their exploits. He's proud of Dan, and it comes out in the stories he tells about times that other famous gamblers spoke highly of Dan's abilities. And years after Dan threw in the towel on grad school, the two of them went back and sat in on some high-level math classes. Also, they did it just for fun. Dan said that he couldn't work for people in the corporate world that he didn't respect, but he's been working with his dad for a long time.
2: In a, especially in his business, I think it's very difficult and rare that people, you know, I mean, can get along without problems in a business for 24 years or something, you know. And uh, I think we worked together perfectly. We were very happy about it And we did enjoy it. I mean, you know, it's not like the work is pure enjoyment, but. Overall, the results were so good, and and we came up with ideas. So yeah, we we enjoyed
0: it. If you're family and you're working in a business like this, and it has a lot of variants, does it get stressful at times? Do you, do you, are, have there been times where it's like I spent 16 hours at the computer on Saturday, and you didn't have to, and you know you were you had to, but you had to deal with phone calls, which I hate doing. But you just you know the you know division of labor, have there been you know whatever. I don't want to say flare-ups, but you know, friction at times over the years due to various stresses? Absolutely. But I you know there's no one else I'd rather work with
1: than my dad. Risk of ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Jim and Dan Pasco for being generous with their time for this episode. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email us, riskofruinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, at halfkelly.